Welcome to episode 15, I believe, of Lost in Translation. I'm Bobby Martin. I'm Sam Perkins. Our guest today is the owner of B3 Fitness, B3 Fitness uh, Chris Braley. Chris is a, a former college basketball player uh, at first Stony Brook University and then at St. Anselm. Now he runs two gyms. Uh, he's a fitness trainer, also competing in some, some you call them fitness contests, are they bodybuilding contests? Uh, yeah, it's both. Um, there's, there's different divisions, I guess you could say. So I'm technically a men's physique competitor and there's bodybuilding is kind of the over scope of everything. Gotcha. What, so what is, the, what is men's physique if there's different? It's basically just a different look, if you will. Like, and you wear different attire on stage and stuff like that. So you're, um, in, you're in, are you in a Speedos? No, I'm not. No. So that would be open bodybuilding. Okay. Classic physique is more like mid-level short, and then mm -hmm. I'm more in like a, a shorter swim trunk type okay. look. Okay. Yeah. Is there any difference in that other than what you're wearing on stage? Is there a difference in what they're looking for between those three to, to place well? Definitely a different look. Um, my division is definitely more of they're going for aesthetic, like uh, um like like a beach body, almost if um, a bigger beach body, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's definitely a different look, and different guys definitely fit into different categories. Um, like I couldn't necessarily, or I wouldn't want to be an open bodybuilder just for the fact that with how tall I am, a lot of those guys are like five six, five seven. Mm -hmm. I would have to be three hundred plus pounds to mm -hmm. look proportionate on stage to be able to compete. It just was, was never something that I never intended to do this in general. Obviously I was a basketball player and it's kind of fell into my lap with the way I like training and how the people I met and how things went. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to me. Uh, I mean, one, you're, you're a gigantic person uh, now, but you were always like a bigger guy. I mean, Chris is built like, sort of, I was kind of built like that like five years ago and beyond when I was really in great shape, but I wasn't 6'4", 5'8", <laughs> which is so it's a little easier to be kind of stockier and stuff, but like, going from from hoops to kind of the the sort of fitness competitions that you're doing and you always had like a a stockier build for a basketball player um but i'm wondering how did that kind of come about that that journey and that transition to 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 being in the competitions you're in to running your own gym yeah or, or gyms i should say plural for sure um i think if you bring it way back was like even freshman year of high school, um, we played in the biggest division for basketball in Maine, um, and I was just like 6'4", 150 pounds, so like just very thin. And I started lifting after that year just because my coach kind of told me to, and I would just look at stuff in the magazines. Didn't there, there wasn't nearly as much literature as there is now about how to train, especially for athletics and stuff. I would just do kind of like bodybuilder workouts then, which is kind of funny now that that's what I'm yeah. into. Um, and then I went to Phillips Exeter for boarding school, and our strength coach there is phenomenal. Um, taught me all like the Olympic lifts, um, really improved my athleticism once I got there. And then the same thing at Stony Brook, our strength coach is great there. And it just was something I was passionate about. So I would spend extra time, I'd do extra shots and stuff as well, but I'd spend a lot of extra time lifting. Um, that's just kind of how it got to that point. And then post college, when I decided to stop playing basketball, um, I got a corporate job at Equinox um, and just trained to improve my physique, if you will, from all standpoints and happened to be close friends and coworkers with someone who bodybuilded. And he just got me ready for like a photo shoot because that's kind of what I wanted to do just for 
more content for social media. I remember that online, actually, that yeah. when I, seeing like your first photo for shoot, sure. I remember that. Flew out to California, did a couple yeah. of them out there with one pretty famous guy and then another lower level guy, got some content, and it just didn't honestly fulfill me from uh, just like a, like you said, the transition from being an athlete and competitor to just doing a photo shoot. The, the vanity of it really didn't do it for me. So then I just, I tried out um, one competition and just kind of took it from there. So at, we go back, you grew up in Maine. And what part of Maine? Because a lot of people don't, I, even I, I've been a New Englander my whole life. It's like Maine, you've got like, you've got like <laughs> Portland and then you've just got the great white north that goes yeah. forever as far as uh, Bostonian. So what, what part of Maine did you grow For up sure. in? For sure. I'm like dead smack central Maine. Town called Newport, went to Nokomis Regional High School. It's about 30 minutes south of Bangor and 30 minutes north of Waterville. And my uh, my fiance always makes fun of me because the sign literally says like the crossroads of Maine. Because you can go <laughs> every which direction from there. Um, and so yeah, it's it's dead smack in the middle. It's not by the beach, but it's definitely not southern Maine. It's uh, it's a great place though. What what was life like growing up there? Um, I mean, I think you don't know what you don't know. So it was slow, but I didn't realize it at the time because I had never really been anywhere else. I started to realize it when I played AAU. Um, I played on a team down in Southern Maine that would travel. I mean, we went everywhere, Florida, Texas, West Virginia, Pittsburgh, everywhere, um, all the big tournaments. And I kind of started getting a feel for other parts of the United States and whatnot. Um, but it was definitely slow. It was different from a sports standpoint, too, in the fact that not a whole lot of people had uh, bigger aspirations. So like when I was working out, he would typically be alone. One other person, whether it be outside at a playground, my backyard, I was lucky enough to have a, access to an old armory that was like a community center. Nice. My, my dad had the keys. So I'd go there from literally 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Try to get my mom to bring me lunch. She's telling me to piss off and come home <laughs> and get it. Um, the, the groups that were a little bit older than me actually did play a little bit of pickup. So like I would work out in the morning, play pickup with like the high schoolers when I was in middle school and then work out again in the afternoon. But like, I think once I got to high school, I tried to bring more people into it. It was sometimes a struggle, but it was definitely different. There just wasn't as many people that were doing it for themselves and trying to build a future in that regard. So was it always basketball? Was that from the beginning or was there? I played four sports growing up, basketball, baseball, soccer, and football. Um, I played three sports my freshman year at high school. So, and then after that, we kind of made the decision, my, my parents and I, that like, it was time to focus, not because of like, they were pushing me in one direction or the other, but like there was one instance where I was catching for starting varsity um, as a freshman on the baseball team, had to leave in like the sixth inning, drove straight to Rhode Island for a 10 p.m. AAU game like four hour drive, whatever, and laced him up and jumped on the court. And my dad's like, you can't do this for four more years. So at that point we kind of just narrowed it in on basketball. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah, probably my best sport at the time for sure. And definitely my favorite. So that was the one who kind of pulled the plug on the other sports. People see you now, they probably think football player. For uh, sure. <laughs> I, I get, I get JJ Watt almost every time I, <laughs> I totally see it now. Yeah. Every time I go to a bar, um, it's JJ Watt. Yeah. And I'm like, Hey, if I was JJ Watt, I, I probably wouldn't be in this spot right now. <laughs> I was actually, I was at a bar, um, probably four or five years ago now, but he was literally playing on like a football Sunday 
at the, at that moment and somebody in the bathroom was like, you're JJ Watt, you gotta be. I'm like, <laughs> he's literally on TV right now. What do you mean? <laughs> but no, I definitely get football a lot and most people don't believe me when I say basketball. That's funny. That's almost like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Naked Gun. I haven't. That's oh my, he's, that's when you know people are young is when they haven't <laughs> yeah, seen that, man. Yeah, I haven't seen Naked yeah. Gun, man. Uh, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen, wasn't it? I think mm-hmm. it was Leslie Nielsen and you know, he's, a, he's a catcher. And well, he's a he's a detective or a policeman or whatever it is, and he takes his uh, he's uh, he's 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 doing his uh, investigating, and he takes his mask off because he's behind the plate. So he goes, "Hey, that's Enrico Palazzo, Enrico Palazzo," and he starts dancing. It was just funny, man. I just I just love the movie. But, um, so. You start off, you're going to Nokomis, which that's a re- it's public, it's a regional high school, correct. is that correct? Yeah, so how, we, go ahead. No, I was going to say, how big of a um, high school? So that was actually the thing. We only had like 650 kids, um, and we were still in class A, which is the number one class at the time, which is Bangor. Like, for instance, like Bangor, I had a friend there that had, they had 150 kids at tryouts. Yeah. We wow. didn't even have enough kids for like the JV and varsity. We had to have a bunch of swingers. Like, we had 25 kids at tryouts. And so after my freshman year, we moved. Because of the school enrollment size, we moved down from A to B. Yeah. The whole state's reclassified now in different ways, um, but we were A and then B for my second two years there. So, one, I, 650 kids is crazy to me for a regional high school. Mm-hmm. My, my high school, I was just at Cambridge's public high school. Our, my class was bigger than that. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, there's tiny schools in Maine, like I like like our, we talked about Garrett beforehand. Yeah. He, he graduated with like 10 people, I think. The whole school had like 100 people. Um, whereas like Nokomis, where I went, was definitely small for our division, but like mid mid size for Maine. Yeah. Mid size for Maine. So you went from there and you end up going to one of the kind of premier prep programs yeah. uh, in the country. How does that happen? Um, yeah, so I was, I repeated my junior year. So I did two years at Phillips Exeter. Um, that process kind of came about I've always kind of beat to my own drum in a sense. Um, I actually applied there without telling my parents. Um, one of my best friends um, wanted to go as well. He was at Berwick Academy down in Southern Southern Maine, and we both applied. Um, and I, the, the only time I told my parents is when I needed a signature, like in the last final steps of the process. And I had my mom sign for it because she was probably easier to talk to <laughs> at the time. Uh, my dad's from our, my hometown, so he was... Like if I would have stayed another year, maybe we win a gold ball, maybe we, whatever. You know what I mean? Like the possibilities. Um, he he was very supportive of it at the end. But, yeah, so I just kind of applied on my own, wanted to challenge myself from a basketball standpoint and an academic standpoint for sure. And, yeah, it ended up being a terrific decision. Now, I was, for, was your dad an athlete in that town? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So he played all three sports there. Um, I think he walked on a main baseball team for a year and then, nice. and then stopped to kind of focus on his studies and whatnot. But, yeah, he grew up in there. Um, everyone, my whole family lives there on his side. So, so were you recruited to Exeter as as, as a basketball player, or was it you kind of applied and then kind of got to get the coach to pay attention to you? And, and then... so they, I only that was the only boarding school. I, actually, I visited Vermont Academy. Um, their coach recruited me, and then a couple of other people came late to the party once they heard I was actually because everyone was like, "No, he's staying in Maine." Um, once I considered it, because I was one of the. I don't want to say the first, but one of the first to definitely do it. Um, Cam Shorey, who played football at UNH, he yep. did it before me. He went to Phillips Exeter for basketball and ended up like doing football as well and ended up playing football in college. But I was definitely one of the first people, especially from the, nor- the northern part of the state, to do it. And to just kind of, it was a decision that I made on my own and then also with my friend who wanted me to apply. 
And so once they kind of had me on their radar, they recruited me, but it wasn't them reaching out initially. What was the experience like as a, I guess as an athlete, and then what was it just like as a, as a, as a kid? Because you're still a kid when you're you know you're repeating your junior year, so you're what 16, 17, yeah. somewhere in that range, yep. to to go from main public to you know a pretty big time private prep school. What was that as an athlete, and then also just as a student? What was yeah. that experience like? No, for sure. Um, to put it bluntly, it was a challenge at first. Um, I mean, I'm super independent, so like it wasn't like a I miss home type of thing. But from an academic standpoint, it was, I was doing, no exaggeration, five hours of homework a night my junior year. Junior year is the hardest year to transfer into, um, and the public school I came from um, wasn't great. I mean, they, it's a good, it's a, I think it's a better school now based on, like, rankings and stuff. Yeah. But, like, any public school going to Phillips Exeter is going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I was doing tons of homework. The bat, from the athletic side, it was great to have the resources. Gym's open any time. You got a shooting gun. You got a strength coach, better weight room equipment, all that stuff. Um, socially, it was fine. I, I, you kind of, it's easier as an athlete because you come in, you have a team of people to kind of uh, group with right away. You don't have to make friends as much. You got 15 guys that are kind of your friends by just being on the same team. But academically, it was a huge challenge. I had a tutor in every single subject. Um, it was a grind, but we got through it. <laughs> So when were you always thinking I want to play college sports? I want to play Division One, or was that was that a goal, or was that something that came along later? Uh, I mean, a goal from I would say like eighth grade on for sure. Like I don't, you didn't think about that when you're seven years. I started playing basketball. I think I was seven or eight. Um, was pretty good and I worked on it a lot. Got better, and then I started playing AAU more seriously in like eighth grade, and then kind of got recruited to play for one of the. There's two premier teams in the uh, MB Nation and then uh, Maine Mac or MBR. They switched names a couple of times in Maine. I got recruited to play for like MB Nation um, for Coach Woodbury, and he uh, he kind of instilled it into me like you could take this and get a free education with it, and that's kind of when we started pushing hard for it. So you started AAU. You were doing serious AAU in the eighth grade. Yeah. Wow. I was playing like he had a. He had a freshman team, like a 15U, I think, yep. um, that was really good. And he, I'd play up. You play up, right? and then yeah, then I play up. I played up a couple of divisions okay. the entire time until I was 17U. And then at that point, it actually, because I'd been playing up, there was no real 17U, so I had no team. So mm-hmm. that's actually I switched to Middlesex Magic and came and played okay. down here for Coach Crotty, All which right. is another amazing experience. Um, he's a great guy, runs a great program. Yes, um, I'm extremely appreciative of both of those um, coaches. How, so how did that go, come about that you're playing? Because we both know, are familiar with Magic. Bobby's involved in AAU now, and, and we've had a bunch of episodes talking about AAU and the good and the bad mm-hmm. uh, that we see now. But but how did you you wind up linking up with with the Magic and with Coach Karate? Um, if I remember correctly, I think basically he knew that I didn't have a team moving forward because I mean, Nation, like the the younger team, was not really. He, we had always focused on that one group, bringing yeah. him up through, mm-hmm. and he knew. And so I think them and then the Rhode Island Hawks both, like, came to a couple of my Exeter games um, and I don't want to say made a pitch, but, like, just had a conversation with me about, hey, this is what we offer as a program. Like, we'd love to have you. And I just ended up going with Coach Crotty. And then as well as my two of my best friends, Harry and Duncan, were coming into Phillips Exeter the next year, and they played Middlesex as well. So we had a really good summer going into our senior year. Um, mm. All of us together. Now, Rhode Island Hawks. What era was that? Who was on that on that team? Do you remember? Um, 
actually Harrison Taggart was. I know that because I ended up playing with him at St. A's. Um, mm-hmm. He's my roommate at St. A's. And then I'm trying to think of the other guys. They had a good squad. They had a good group of guys. Yeah, like four or five guys that all played college basketball at some level. Okay. Um, some scholarships, some non, some high academic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, they were a good team. So what was the experience like playing for the Magic and for Coach Karate? It was great. Um, it was definitely a little bit of a different system than what we, we ran with MB Nation. Um, but we had a we had a ton of talent. Uh, Peter Miller went to Princeton. Duncan ended up obviously at Michigan and now for the Heat. Um, Harry was at Wesleyan. It was just a really good experience. He runs a great program both from like an organization standpoint. And I just think he's a super knowledgeable coach, obviously. He's stood the test of time and built that program the right way. Um, so that was really what it's all about for me, is always trying to find programs with the right type of people that I meshed with and that my parents felt good about and stuff like that. So the college recruiting process, how does that go? Because you wind up at Stony Brook, you're a Maine kid. I know one of your one of your really close friends, Garrett Beal, ends up going to Maine. Um, who was recruiting you, and, and how did that recruiting process go? It was actually super interesting because I had, I think I had 25 to 30 offers at one point in like my junior, beginning of junior, or I guess the transition between Nokomis and Phillips mm-hmm. Exeter. Um, and I actually lost some of those technically because I had such a high GPA at Nokomis. I had like a 3.9. And then I go to Phillips Exeter and my GPA is a lot worse just because it's so much more challenging. Mm-hmm. So some of those Ivy Leagues um, actually had to like pull out just because of academic standards. And um, it just got down to, I took three official visits, uh, James Madison, Stony Brook, and Maine. Um, and I just felt really good about the Stony Brook environment. Like, I loved Maine, but I didn't love where their program was at. Um, and I, thought, I felt great on my visit at Stony Brook. The environment there was awesome, com- especially in comparison to the rest of the league. Obviously, they They were winning. They were on the cusp of the NCAA tournament for sure. each year. Every year, um, I thought there was a spot for me there. I, like, I just felt good about the coaching staff and everything that went along with it. So, yeah, that was kind of what ultimately... And I committed pretty late. I think it was January or February of my senior year. Um, so, yeah. So this is, you said Maine, Stony Brook, and James Madison? We're the three that I took officials to. Wow, so you're just covering the Eastern Seaboard at that yeah. point. Just trying. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. okay. Yeah. Who, who right. was the lead recruiter at Stony Brook on you? Do you remember who it was that really was, was kind of? I honest, like, honestly, it was mostly Coach Michael. Um, Coach Young, for sure, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it was pretty late in the process, um, Coach Peichel, I, I, like, obviously things you, like, kind of like, the uh, podcast lost in translation. I've had a lot go on since then, but I, if I remember correctly, like he came to a couple practices in back-to-back games, and then to obviously I'd already had the offer, but just kind of show his face and everything. Coach Young definitely threw more of the live period stuff, but I, I definitely remember him, Coach Pico, during the season coming up a lot. So we had a couple guys. I think Chris Bruff, who played at Maine, yes. uh, who's a teacher now in Lexington, was was on. We were talking about the recruiting process. Made me think of my own recruiting process and. There's always stuff where, like, oh, I wish I knew then yeah. what, I, what I know now or would have done differently. He talked about how he wished that he had literally kind of spent more time, like, following people around mm-hmm. and in practices to get – because coach, when they recruit you, they present one way. And then oh, it yeah, can be totally different once you get through the doors and you don't have other options now. Are there things that you, if you could do it over again, would have done differently during the recruiting process? Um, no, honestly, I don't think so. Um my parents and I did a ton of unofficial visits. Um, like we did, you want to talk about the whole East Coast. Like we did like, because we were from Maine, we had to do it all in one. Yeah. We're not going to make <laughs> m- multiple trips. Like we did like six visits all in one tour. It was like. That is great. 
New Hampshire, Fairfield, Colgate, yeah. uh, Albany, Siena, uh, Cornell, like all in one big loop. Um, and then went back home, Vermont, all that stuff. Um, so no, I don't think I really have anything that I would look back on. I think everything kind of happens for a reason. Um, the move to Stony Brook was great. And then obviously the, the transfer to St. A's worked out really well for me. Um, but I don't think I would have covered anything differently. So what was it like when you got to Stony Brook? I mean, what kind of a player would you describe yourself as looking back on it? Would, would you say you were and, and, and just what was it like? You, you get to a Division One school and then what was that experience like? Um, as far as describing myself as a player, I think it, it changed a lot throughout my career. Um, I was definitely more of like an athletic slasher shooter in high school. Um, and then I got to Stony Brook in my first year had kind of had the role of being more of a spot-up shooter just because yeah. we had so much talent like between mm-hmm. Jamil and Carson and yeah. everybody around and all that so I, I played uh, we were talking beforehand I had some I had some minute some games my freshman year I get 12 or 15 minutes other games I get six come in hit a couple threes whatever it may be more of a spot-up role and just being a solid role guy sophomore year coming in I was I was like in the starting rotation for most of like the preseason and then I didn't end up starting at all that year, but same thing, ups and downs, 20 minutes a game versus no minutes a game, just very volatile in that sense, and that's kind of just how sports go. So um, if you uh, talk talk to me, St. A's is Division Two. Yep. I'm guessing, so what was that transition like, going from that D1 to a, a D2? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I don't want to, like, it wasn't really an ego check for me at all. Um, I guess saying it was at first, mm-hmm. like I'm transferring down to a D2. That's right. yep. But once you get there and realize the type of talent the ND10 has, how many Division One transfers are in there, um, just literally my first, like when, when I came for pickup, um, I could definitely tell like I was a little more athletic than like a lot of the guards and stuff. But from like a skill standpoint, these guys are super talented. Mm-hmm. I mean, we won 25 games both years I was there, just like both years I was at Stony Brook. Um, yeah, it was just, it wasn't an ego check in that sense. I was just more surprised at, honestly, how good they all were. And I had friends who played Division Three, so I knew that level was good as well. Mm-hmm. I'd never experienced, like, the in-between, I guess. Right. You, well, you saw, there were three schools in the area now that have transferred up from the NE10. UMass, Lowell, Bryant, Merrimack. And all three of them in their conferences that they transferred up to hit the ground running. You know, UMass, and, Lowell, their first year, they finish... Uh, eight and eight in the America in America East play. They're right smack in the middle. You know, Bryant was competitive right away. Now Bryant's gone to the NCAA. You know, we're, we're mm-hmm. time removed. Yeah. Merrimack is when they transferred up. They were super competitive in the in the um, the NEC that they. So it's like I think people don't understand that when you get to that like low major Division One smaller conference versus the really good Division Twos that that they're that very close. And there's right. you know I think a little more depth. Little more athleticism at the Division One overall, um, but there's some other reasons that guys wind up at D two. They fall through the cracks or the sure. you know NCAA clearinghouse or whatever, and that those Division two schools, you know, when they play, there's a reason why the low D one schools they'll go play like a UConn in the non conference. They don't schedule, but the they D2s. won't schedule because no. you know it, it. They lose to them sometimes in the preseason in the scrimmages. 
because people don't realize how competitive those D2s are to the low D1s. Yeah, going off of that, um, there's a couple couple points. I know that it was actually funny because I was telling the, the St. A's guys when I got there about how like we played UMass Lowell, and I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, but like I'm pretty sure that UMass Lowell finished lower in the NE10 they did. than they did when they moved up to the America yep. East. So that kind of proves your point. Yeah. And then... I mean, we always Coach Crowdy always talked about it too. Like when he was at when he was at Williams on that national championship team, they played Holy Cross in a and preseason. They won. they won, and I'm pretty sure the year after I left St. A's, they scheduled UNH, and I think they beat they UNH. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that was just three points right there that you kind of what you just talked about. I remember when 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 uh, Williams beat Holy Cross. It yeah. was like, and that was a Holy Cross team that went to the NCAA tournament. Yeah. So it was like, wasn't a bad Holy Cross team. It was just people don't realize that those. Um, those you know lower divisions can still be really quality for sure. And I think a lot of kids don't realize it when they're being recruited, when they have that Division One or bust mindset that it's like there's some really great opportunities that aren't at the Division One level. No, definitely. How so? A question of mine because I remember when you were recruited to Stony Brook and it was people like athletic slasher. Yeah. And I remember you coming in and basically just being stuck in that shooter role. And I mean, you were like a burly guy, you're a strong guy, you're, you're quick. But they, the only sets they had to kind of have you out there is like, okay, you be the shooter over here. How tough was that? And were there conversations with the coaching staff about your role? You know, just I can't imagine that's easy. You know, you go from playing high level, having a lot of offers in high school, and then you're kind of not really getting the opportunity maybe certainly that you'd like, maybe that you felt like you had the ability for. Yeah, I mean, I – it was uh, – it wasn't difficult, I wouldn't say, because I've always been like a team guy. Um, kind of, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. If that's my role, that's my role. Um, at the end of my Stony Brook career, we actually switched me to like a face-up four because I could defend bigger guys and rebound yeah. well, that type of stuff. So, I mean, it was definitely an adjustment like any any time that you're changing roles is in, in regular life or as an athlete. Um, but no, it was, it was an adjustment, but it wasn't something that I really thought too much about. I just kind of went out there as a freshman, especially like, okay, you want to give me 10 minutes to stand in the corner and defend? Like, I'll do it. If that gets me those 10 minutes rather than sitting on the bench. Mm. What was, uh, so you've got two gyms. Mm-hmm. Right? How long have you had the gyms? Um, I opened the first one in October of 2020, right in the middle of COVID. How was that? Um, it was honestly great. So I left... So Equinox closed down in March of 2020 when everything hit, obviously. Mm-hmm. I had a really good business there, to be honest. Um, tons of clients, doing a ton of sessions. Um, and then we kind of had that middle period. We are doing some virtual stuff with clients, maybe training them outside of the park or whatever. And I just needed a space um, for myself to train clients. And then, obviously, I wanted to give other trainers opportunities to kind of run their own business as well. So I, I found a, sp- a commercial space in the back bay, um, opened it up, started training my clients, and knew a lot of clients and uh, knew a lot of trainers in the area. They came in, started renting, bringing theirs, and it filled up really quickly, which is kind of what brought me to open my second one a little less than a year later. And the whole thing about COVID was you obviously had that window where you couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But once I opened the studio, it was you were allowed, like, one, it was allowed to have one on one or one on two. So I could actually stay open while the big gyms are closed. Right. Which actually was some of my most profitable times because you're getting trainers coming over from the big gyms too, and then the people who also work for themselves. Because people at that point were like, it was seven, eight months into into COVID, and they wanted they wanted to get fit again. They wanted to kind of get out and do stuff, and they felt like that was a safe space to do so. We had all the sanitizing rules and all that stuff. Um, 
certain people wore masks if it was mandated at, the, at certain times. So yeah, it was actually great. Um, and obviously it's kind of taken off from there. That's awesome. I, uh, you know, did you have, what did you make? Did, were you a business background as far as your undergrad major or? I was a health science because um, I wanted to go in like strength conditioning, kinesio. So um, Stony Brook has a great medical school. Um, so I was in health science there, which then from there, they, people kind of go off to doctors or whatever. Mm -hmm. They didn't have kinesiology direct, directly. So I was health science. And then when I went to St. A's, I was natural science. So no, no business stuff really at all. Yeah, so you've got the background in what you're kind of teaching your yeah. clients. So you've yeah. got that background, but running a business is the experience for me and my wife too. Uh, so we both, you know, my wife runs a private practice now. It's been amazing experience for her, but it was running a business still. I mean, she's been doing it for you know, a bit more than two years, it's, it's, it is a real, you're always learning. And sometimes through, through mistakes, it is, you're not prepared, you know, for it without that, that business. To, and even with a business degree, you still kind of need that hands-on experience, but it is, it is, uh, it is definitely a different animal, the actual business aspect I would imagine versus the training aspect of it. And, and what, what were, were there some challenges or were there some, some lesson, big lessons that you learned from running a business perspective along the way so far? For sure. Um, it's definitely not always smooth sailing. And the biggest thing about entrepreneurship is I'm sure as you can attest to in your wife is that like, there's no off switch. There's yeah. always something that can be done. Like I can always at 10 o'clock at night, improve my sales scripts, or I can always like go crunch some numbers about a client's like lifetime value or whatever it may be. Um, but I think what I really brought me into like liking the business side of things is I noticed it at Equinox is that like, I love the numbers of it. I'm like, okay, um, what's my closing? Because we had to sell clients that they, they bring them in and then you, they, they give you a consultation. You got to sell them on a package, whatever it may be. So there's a little bit of sales going on there. You're not just like gifted a client. You got to make sure they, they want to train with you. So like I would always look at like my closing percentages or like where I was in the company across the whole country and like how many sessions I was doing and all that stuff. The numbers always intrigued me. Um, so moving that into my own business was that part was easy, but there's definitely stuff when opening the studios, whether it be like negotiating the lease or the legal contracts of like, doing the insurance stuff and all that stuff was, it was a learning process, especially on the first studio. The second one was a little bit easier just because for one, the landlord didn't budge much and <laughs> uh, because COVID was kind of yeah. filtering out a little bit. Obviously it's still present as we all know, but um, yeah, there's definitely a ton of learning process and all of that. And it's something that's, it's exciting. You just kind of got to go with it and not be, you want to be critical of yourself to make good decisions, but you can't be too hard on to yourself too. If you don't have anything that's, You've no, no experience in it, you know? Um, so, I mean, it sounds like when you were working at Equinox in, you know, your training, but there's a sales component that that kind of gave you some practical experience in starting to understand the numbers, starting to understand, like, the value of, of, of your time, you know, how much you put into making a sale, how, you know, you know, the return on the investment of For time sure. and all different stuff. Um, were there other things that you did? Were there courses? Were there readings? Or was it kind of just on-the-job life, ex life experience training that once you took over and started running your own business, you did to understand the whole total business package of it? Or was it just kind of a, a learning as you went from what you were experiencing? No, definitely. Um, I think at first it was just learning as I was experiencing. Like especially we talked about those sales things. I noticed that like I had a higher closing percentage than most people. I think it comes down to like conviction, like sales is all about conviction. And like, if I can convince you about what, what I can provide for you, like you're going to be bought in regardless of kind of what the price point is or whatever it may be. Um, I mean, there's obviously limitations to that, but moving that 
into regular training, it was always easy because I knew that I was good at that. Whereas the studios and getting more trainers in there or getting the online business scaled, like which is what I'm trying to do right now, um, that was a little bit different because there's different processes that go in place. Mm -hmm. It's not just me convincing you like face to face that I can give you a good workout and get you some results. There's other components that go into it. So th for that stuff, I have hired mentors um, for my online business or for the studio. And I've, yeah, nobody's above kind of learning from other people. Mm -hmm. If somebody's done it and can kind of streamline my process a lot quicker, save me from some legwork or some money on the on the front end or the back end, I'm always I'm always up for that. That's cool. You know, one of the things you, you find out in sales is that, and I'm, I'm sure you see this, I'd like you to talk about, um, you've been an athlete all your life, mm -hmm. so you understand what, you understand the difference between price and cost. Yeah. And this is what you're trying to sell your clients, right? That the price is probably a one-time thing and cost, whether you do it or you don't do it, you will be paying it forever. For sure. And as an athlete, you understand that, right? Mm -hmm. This is the price I have to pay right now because if I don't, man, this could get really bad for a long time. How do you sit? What do you, what, what, what's your, uh, what, I shouldn't say what's your technique, but do you, do you try to talk to your clients about the difference between price and cost? For sure. I mean, like you kind of alluded to there is like, what's the cost of not doing it? Mm -hmm. That's the major question for a lot of people. But at the same time, I have a ton of different clientele. I might have, I've worked with everyone from like 14 year old, like phenom athletes to mm -hmm. 70 year olds with Parkinson's and right. everyone in between. So like everyone has different uh, pain points, if you will. Like some people, like you said, like what's the cost of not doing it? Mm -hmm. Where some people just want to like level up where they're at already. Right. Um, and yeah, when, with those people, you just kind of got to break it down and have honest conversations about everything, you know, whether it be the financial situation, whether it be the um, state that they're in right now yeah. and how much worse it can get or how much better it can be. And as all three of us have been athletes, like, we know what it feels like, what it's like to feel really good. Some people have never felt really good and you got to kind of sell that vacation to them um, rather than the process that it takes to get there. It's the intangible yeah. that you got to sell them, For right? sure. Like yeah. the vacation, not the flight. Sure. No, it's, yes. it's super important. What, do you have philosophies when it gets into the training uh, as far as, um, you know, because you wor you've worked with all different, as you've said, uh, calibers of people. And is there anything that is uh, the actual training that is like a philosophy of yours that, that, that you kind of take with no matter who the client is? Or is it kind of all different depending on who you're working with? It's definitely all the all different depending on who I'm working with, but there's two things, like one being training, one doing being nutrition that are kind of like, to me, are just gold standards. Like, you see so, you have so much information overload that it's almost like paralysis from analysis these days. Like, you see, oh, this, should I try this exercise? Should I try that one? There's certain ones that have stood the test of time. Like, and there's, there's your squats, your pushes, your pulls, all that mm -hmm. stuff, but like, and there's variations to those, but like, we're not gonna get away from, those are gonna be our foundation and then you can accessory off of those. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much for any client. Like. A uh, 70 year old, as like as long as their knees are healthy and whatever else, like they should be squatting squat. just like a 14 yeah, year old should be. Right. Um, and then for the nutrition side of things, like it's super customized, obviously based on goals. But like everybody should be eating like nutrient dense foods, whether it be whether it be meats, vegetables, and then your your healthy carbohydrates, like whatever it may be. That's just getting rid of some of the processed stuff um, and and diving into how they should split those up throughout a day. And then fueling their body for like a work day, and also if they have obviously bigger workout goals as well. We're you know we're a society that 
we struggle with sedentary lifestyle. For sure. Period. And I struggle with it. And I'm someone that, I mean, I've talked to you a lot about your... Uh, still trying to get that going on my end. I know I need to. Uh, I but, saw Planet uh, Fitness over there. We got to. We got to get. Yeah, <laughs> I got. Oh, I got another membership to another gym too that has yeah. all the stuff that I love. That I found one that's closer. So I love it. Um, but you know I've struggled with the. I was super fit. Fitness was life. I mean I was like five eight two thirty and like seven percent body fat. Yeah. And could bench a lot of weight and you know and then over time kids everything you know depression, just not being active. And and realizing like, man, if it happens to me and I was someone that like fitness was life, if I yeah. go back 10 years ago, like I lived it, breathed it, was reading everything on the latest mm-hmm. stuff. And if it can happen to me and, and I'm not happy with where I'm at now, it can really happen to everyone. Like what what are your thoughts on on, you know, because I, I know it's a worldwide phenomenon, but it's especially in America, like we're a, a country that really struggles with being active. Like mm-hmm. do you have. Um, I don't want to say tips, but do you just have thoughts on that and on how people can kind of can can get over that hurdle? Because I, I was just listening to NPR yesterday and they were talking about how like new studies have come out that like we need to be we already knew that we're not active enough, but yeah. that maybe actually we're even worse than we thought that we were. For sure. Um, there's a couple ways I want to take that. And for one, I always tell people like there's never a right time. Everyone's like, oh, I'm, I'm super busy right now. I'll be better in a month. It never slows down. Like once you're in a, once you're an adult, you guys know, like there's something, one mm-hmm. thing after the next, one bill, whether it be like it just keeps going. Um, so that's, that's the first thing I always try to talk to people about is that like I actually had a client who's like, I want to start in two weeks. This is on like on, on a Tuesday. I'm like, well, no, why don't we start next Monday? She's like, I need to mentally prepare myself. I'm like, well, you have six days. That's like we're going to start on Monday. And she's like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like what, what are those two weeks going to do for you? how are you mentally are you like binging food like just putting yourself in a worse spot because like you know you're going to be on like a diet and like i don't really diet people i try to improve their lifestyle through food and whatnot um as far as the sedentary thing goes i actually always look at like the way i build fitness programs as like a pyramid being like the 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 foundation's got to be your nutrition and i actually put like most people think like cardio will be number two or something i put incident incidental exercises number two like a, a baseline of like step goals and some people don't wear apple watches or whatever it may be but like i typically give people a goal for just general movement whether it be going on two 20 minute walks a day or whatever it may be you got everyone's got kids they can put in a stroller and take them for a walk or whatever it may be and then from there you build up with your workouts your cardio and then like supplements like health supplements or whatever if you want to add that as like a Mm -hmm. they are exactly what they say they're supplemental they're not like your foundation um and yeah and it's crazy you talked about the npr like i think i read the other day that like 60 percent of people in america are overweight and like 40 are obese it's just it's it's insane so that's that's interesting so at one point at what point just like you you were you were uh you just talked about your client at what point do you accept personal responsibility and go for it now, how do you get that message across to your clients? Because that's that's the toughest part. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got our society is is built around okay, uh, you know, life is what's what's the Duncan slogan? Uh, America runs on Duncan. Run, yeah. Runs on Duncan, right? Yeah. It runs on Duncan. You've got plenty of fast food around there. Yeah. It's easy, and the hardest thing to do is 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 look in the mirror and say stop. Yeah. Right, because sure. it's just too convenient. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you? Because you've got an athlete mindset. We all have athlete mindsets, right? That was Carol Dweck's book or mindset or something yeah. like that, right? So, how do you help them change the mindset? The mindset's tough because it really has to be a them decision. But what I think I thrive in and kind of help people with is, especially like, 
getting them to believe in themselves that they can they can take the take the leap or take it's not a risk because you're you're helping yourself but like sign up mm-hmm. and then from there let momentum kind of take over so like with our online training specifically we have a, a high level of accountability twice a week check-ins like there's an app that nice. when they enter something I get direct feedback so I can see what you're doing at all times mm-hmm. and that holds people accountable and what they figure out is like after two or three weeks of of showing up for themselves, they typically feel a lot better. Right. And then like, just like sports, like momentum is huge. Once momentum takes over, you can really get a snowball effect and like dive into some, some more intense stuff or just have them start changing their lifestyle. And like what I see with a lot of people is like, if there's a mom who, who kind of like finally is like, I want to feel better because I've been taking care of my kids. They're a little bit older now, take care of my husband, whatever it may be, they start feeling better. And then that trickles down to their kids and their husband eating better as well. And their husband might lose weight, not even knowing it because the wife may be cooking all the dinners. And he's like, oh, I've lost 10 pounds. I didn't mm-hmm. do anything different. And she's mm-hmm. like, well, that's because I changed what you were mm-hmm. eating. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so now momentum slows down. Motivation is gone. Motivation is great in the beginning. right? But how many times do you get up as an athlete during the day and do what you have to do even though you don't want to do it? Yeah, motivation is definitely fleeting. Um, and I think when that happens is that's kind of the habits that we try to build people is a discipline kind of takes over. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've been in a program for 12 weeks or people say what, three months to make a habit, something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like if you've been in a program, we have people do a 12 week, like starter program. If you've been in something for three months and you go then three, four days without working out, it now feels weird to you. And so now you have those habits and those disciplines in place. Yes. And so, Sometimes momentum does take over and like somebody goes on a vacation for two weeks and they can't just can't get back into it. Mm-hmm. And those are those are struggles. And you kind of have to deal with everyone differently because that's a personality thing at that point. Like, how do I motivate this person to mm-hmm. do that first day again? Kind of like we did at the beginning. And it may be a different approach. But I think when the momentum slows down, most of the time you can you can just lean on those habits and the discipline that you've built if you've had a long enough relationship with that client. Right, yeah. right. So you've got every client that's going to be different just like every game is different. For sure. You can plan for it, but when that team throws a 1-3-1 a one, a one, at you, are like, oh, <laughs> wait a minute, whoa, whoa, what do we do here? 100%, yeah. Okay. I, I, as an aside, I, I always wonder from someone who's like a, a, like a fitness pro like you are, that, that you live it, you breathe it, because you always see peripherally social media, like all the different trends that come out. And yeah. to me... Not even just look ridiculous, but like, are there ones to you specifically over the last several years that like you just kind of laugh at or are like, like this is, you know, when I think of all the different trends I've seen, whether it was like, uh, you know, like waist trainers for women or, and I'm like, how, how would that scientifically work? It doesn't yeah. seem like there's any, but like, are there things to you that you just kind of like shake your head at or face palm that, that, you know, that you've seen lately that like people really think is like going to make a lifestyle change, but it's, it's, it's really, there's no substitute for just doing the work. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like the quick fixes in the world these days. Um, magic pill. Yeah, no, (laughs) yeah. There's no magic pills, but people, people always wish for them. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I try to, I'm lucky enough that like I keep my, most of those things are going to come at you through like referrals from other people or like your social media. Luckily, like my social media gets cleansed the most of that stuff because of the, it's all about the people you follow and yeah. kind of what you see. But no, I definitely, uh, clients like, oh, like I'm, maybe I'm struggling to lose weight. Like, should I try this like 12 day detox yeah. or whatever it may be? And most of the time it's like, if you want to try and spend your money on that, go ahead. But like they come at the end of it and realize it didn't work. Um, Cause there, like you said, there's no quick fix. It's about building a sustainable lifestyle that can compound on each other over time. Um, but yeah, as far as the fads go, I don't know of any directly that 
stick out in my head right now. <laughs> the waist trainer one's funny because it's actually pretty prevalent in like the bodybuilding fitness community. Really? Strictly because people have a misconception about waist trainers. I have never personally worn one, but I know people who do in that like it doesn't shrink your waist. Like that, like you said, scientifically it yeah. just doesn't make sense. What are you just pushing your organs in? Like yeah. it doesn't, <laughs> what it does do for people is like, if you have something tighter on your stomach, and you eat a big meal and you just want to like lay back after like Thanksgiving and like let, let it all hang out. Yeah. It doesn't allow for that. So it makes you control your midsection at all times. Oh, so like okay. you can't hang over a waist trainer. You have to like keep it tight, which then can improve posture right. and like give you better just abdominal control, which mm-hmm. in the sport that I compete in like is important. You got to be able to control like your muscles at all times. Um, but no, for the most point, waist trainers are not necessary for the general <laughs> public. So you can, I would include that in the fad. Yeah. What, um, so you've gotten into, and, and I want to call it bodybuilding because you went through that there is some different, mm-hmm. but you've gotten into the fitness competitions. You know, what has that experience been like? You know, I know, you know, while we've got, I know we've got a certain amount of time left, but I, I definitely wanted to touch upon that. Yeah, like, for you sure. know, what that experience has been like for you. Um, it's like kind of scratched the itch of giving me something to work for. Like I personally, and some people say this um, in like our community and whatnot, I genuinely don't even enjoy the stage being up there that much. I honestly love the process leading up to it. The dieting's hard, but it's like a good mental challenge. Um, Obviously the the look you attain is something you can be proud of. Um, And it's not a sustainable look long time. Look, getting 5% body fat, you don't want to live like that. It's miserable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is like a challenge to get to. And it really just scratched the itch of giving me something. I wasn't even looking for like the competition. I was just looking for something to work towards. Like, okay, I have a 16-week timeline. Just like when you get a three-month off-season before you show up for, for, su- like for, for summer basketball, um, for summer school. Like, okay, I got two months to improve on my mm-hmm. game so I can get from six-man to a starting spotter, right. whatever it may be. Yeah. Or go from 12 points a game to 15 points a game. Um, it's kind of that. It just gives me a timeline. It gives me something to progress towards and to feel motivated for, motivated for every day, even though, like we talked about, motivation isn't always there. I mean, you seem like, because I know that for, for a trainer, certainly looking the part, mm-hmm. it helps in sales. Yeah. But you don't seem like someone that your motivation to be going through this, to be staying, keeping yourself in the kind of shape you're in right now is, like, simply sales and business. It seems like it's something internal that... that is it is it still like now that you're not competing in hoops anymore? Is it giving you that kind of competition almost against yourself? I know you hear people talk about that a lot, but for sure. And I actually think about all the time like I'm not gonna compete in fitness or bodybuilding, whatever you want to call it, for for like forever. And I'm always like, okay, after that, like, do I jump into some like CrossFit stuff? It's always the next thing in a sense. Um, and yeah, it really is just what you just said. It's it's a a chance for daily progression. Wherein, like, in your everyday life, you might not see that. And I kind of get the same fulfillment from business, too, being like, okay, looking at numbers, being like, okay, the business grew X amount this week or this month. It's just a constant quest for projection or uh, for uh, progression. And sometimes the, you know, the, the target moves, but it's still the same, like, the same goal. Do you know what, do you have, like, future goals already, or is it kind of you're still figuring out what, what? The main goal would be obviously to continue to scale the studios um, in revenue and profit, everything like that, um, as well as like the online business. And then from there, Bobby and I were kind of talking about it is like the name of the studio is or the the business is B3 Fitness, which stands for Body by Braley, like BBB. Um, And so with that, like 
coining at B3 Fitness allows for hopefully at one point for it to live past when I'm directly have hands on. Not that I want to sell the business or anything like that, but I can take a step back and maybe not be the face of it and have it still be an emerging business. Um, so yeah, definitely just to keep growing it, whether it be another studio, whether it be a bigger online platform, there's not any like, there's definitely number goals, but there's no set um, timeline for anything at this point. I guess the last thing I'd ask you is, what do you have any, any like, if you were to give a piece of advice to uh, a business owner and a piece of advice to someone who's like starting their fitness journey, what would what would the advice be to each of them? I mean, I guess the broad, I'll, I'll go deeper, but the broad overview would be to invest in yourself. Um, for business owners too, like I learned so much from hiring a couple of mentors and mentorships that I've done, um, both from a, I mean, I had huge financial gain from it, but also just in knowledge and kind of learning what they've done and what they've messed up on and making sure I don't do the same things. So investing in yourself, especially when you don't have as much risk in your 20s. Um, I'm 28 right now, um, no kids. So like if I spend 30 grand on a mentorship and it doesn't work, like I don't have to worry about not being able to pay for diapers. Like I have yeah. I have the chance right now to kind of do those things where in four or five years I may be not be able to, um, to take those risks. So I definitely do that early on. And then for someone who's starting their fitness journey, yeah, I mean, it's really just starting. That's the biggest thing is like walking through the door um, and then getting that momentum that we talked about earlier going. Tr like trust yourself that it's something that you're doing for yourself. Don't do it for the wrong reasons, even though I think any, any way to get in the gym is fine, <laughs> whether it be the demons or just wanting to feel better, whatever it may be. But yeah, just to start, just to get going, um, because that's typically for people is the hardest part. Once they start feeling better, momentum takes over and you're good to go. That's awesome advice. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I had a lot. I had a had a great time. Appreciate you being here, man. That's thank awesome. you. Thank, thank you. you.